troubling words from a Black Lives Matter leader, and then what I wish I'd known about friendship after college. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. Let me say it again. Happy Friday. It's March the 1st, and we made it to the weekend. Hope that you've got a good weekend planned ahead of you. We're now into March. Uh, You know, in theory, March comes in like a lion, out like a lamb. That's the old saying. Now, I believe in the Midwest and in the Chicagoland, it uh, it comes in like a lion, but it goes out like a just rain. Right. March is just what becomes in the late March is just rain. I know this because my son uh, and, and plays baseball. My daughter plays softball. And we're going to reach the time where the season's supposed to start here on their high school seasons in the middle of March. And it's going to be rain out after rain out after rain out. I remember last year, I think it was like in his first two or three weeks of games of scheduled games beginning in the middle of March. I think they played out of the first 10. Maybe they played three times. Like that's what happens in March. It just rains. So it's going to get us to the nice spring. It's going to get us to the flowers and the growing lawn. We'll be mowing our lawns before we know it. It's been a pretty, uh, thankfully, unseasonably warm February for parts of it. So uh, we we're, we are ready for this. Glad that you're with us today as we head into the weekend. I was reading the other day uh, words from a Black Lives Matter leader. And they got, it got my attention, right? This is what headlines are supposed to do. Headlines are supposed to get your attention. It just said Chiefs Super Bowl win symbolizes, quote, white supremacy. So a professor at Cal State University who's also a leader in their local Black Lives Matter um, kind of area, their, their section there, criticized the Kansas City Chiefs victory and Taylor Swift fandom as examples of white supremacy. Uh, Malina Abdullah, who teaches Pan-American Studies and co-founded the Los Angeles BLM chapter, posted on social media that the Super Bowl result was a, quote, right-wing right wing white supremacist conspiracy. She said feeling uncomfortable with too many American flags or being a Taylor Swift fan stems from similar feelings. She wrote, why do I feel like it's slightly racist to be a Taylor Swift fan? Kind of like that feeling I get when there are too many American flags. And here's the line uh, I want you to hear her say. Folks think they're attacking me by asking why I think everything's racist. I'm not offended. Virtually everything is racist. Virtually everything is racist. So that's what I want to lean in on here, because I think in that short line, uh, we have kind of defined one of our cultural problems because it feels like in this day and age of claiming people are woke or claiming people are racist, claiming people are adding titles to everybody. It feels like you have two categories increasingly correct, right? This is what we do in our culture. Everything's about the polls. Everything's about being the extreme. And when it comes to issues of race, let's just jump into the deep end today. When it comes to issues of race, it feels like increasingly in the American culture, your options are everything is racist or nothing is racist. 
And then people, most of us who are common sense thinkers go, well, I think those are both overly simplistic, um, inflammatory, and just wrong. But you've got some people on the one hand who anytime race is brought up, you're woke, you're woke, you're woke. And you go, well, no, I just want to have a conversation about um, our country's issues and history of racism and, and the effects of it and acknowledgement of it. And then there are other people, if you don't see race in everything, if you go, well, no, I actually don't think that's a problem in this situation or that you can't speak to this every and you're like, well, then how does a real conversation occur? We see this in our politics as well. Increasingly, at least the picture that the media teaches us is that everybody's either far right or far left. And never the two come together. And so many of us long for, say, a presidential candidate or a, 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 a body of Congress that will work together and compromise together and and look for common ground and look for ways to better our culture and better our country. But we turn on the television or we listen to the rhetoric and all that we hear, we turn on social media and all that we hear is you're either far right or you're far left. And that leaves us with a Congress that gets nothing done. And presidents, presidential candidates who speak to their most extreme base. The more I talk to people about issues like this, the more I think people are tired and discouraged by uh, the rhetoric that, that, separates us and gets us to the poles and gets us to our extremes. And ironically, I think the church, while maybe not doing a good job at this, is supposed to be a bridge, is supposed to be, uh, at least within the, the church community, is supposed to be not divided, but unified, right? Jesus prays in John chapter 17, that his church would be unified. And then he goes to, says something unbelievable in John 17, right? In John 17, he's praying for the future church. This is right before Jesus is arrested and crucified. And he prays that the future church would be unified so that they would know, they being people who aren't a part of a church, they would know that Jesus was the one sent by God, that Jesus is the son of God. What's the apologetic? It's the unity of the church. And in this fractured culture that we live in, you're woke, you're a white supremacist, you're nothing is racist, everything is racist. In this fractured culture, this inflammatory culture that we live in, where the words people say do not help at all solve the problems and solve the issues, to claim nothing is racist will, will stop us from ever having healing or conversations about race. To claim everything is racist will stop us from having any conversations and any healing about race. Whereas most of us are going, we, we want to have those conversations. We want to be a better church and a better country and a better people. The church is meant to be a unifying um, 
presence under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But I fear that we're not doing that very well. Oftentimes we see the same fracturing within churches that we see outside of the churches. Along lines of politics and other hot button issues. And that should not be the case. Are you a unifier? Are you a bridge builder? Are you somebody that can reach across the aisle to use the political imagery and go, you know what? I, I want to hear more. See, we don't listen as a culture anymore. Hey, I want to hear why you think everything's racist. Let's have this conversation. Hey, you say nothing's right. I want to hear why you think that. Let's have a conversation together. You, oh, you think uh, this about politics. I think this. Let's have a conversation. But we've lost the ability to listen, to talk. All we do is yell at each other. And it's to the detriment of our culture. It's to the detriment of who we are. Church, we're meant to be a unifying presence, a calming presence. We're to bring people together. And that unifying presence will become an apologetic to who we say our Lord is. I want to talk about friendship. It's got my mind working over at Relevant Magazine. They said, what I wish I'd known about friendship after college. This is written by Heather Callery. Uh, and she says, um, she talks about her fear of after college, would I ever have that sort of community again? I want you to think back to college. Maybe it was a bad time for you. But for me, uh, I went to Wheaton College. That's how I ended up out here in the Midwest. And while at Wheaton, I made some of my very best friends. Why? Because you're living with them. That's the beauty of dorm life. You are uh, in community on steroids. Like you're together all the time. And you're all in the same scenario. You've all just left home. You're all kind of figuring out college. You're all in classes. Uh, and so you start bonding over video games and pizza and classes. And you start all of a sudden building friendships and then those friendships get deeper and it's like again uh, college like i said is like um community just on steroids it just happens and then you leave college thinking that's how life is and it becomes a lot harder and this author asks will i ever have such good friends as i made there will i ever have that kind of community Again, and she says finding friendships and community as an adult is a work in progress for her, and it's difficult. It's hard. And many times, a lot of us end up keeping and holding on to our college friends, our high school friends, which is awesome. But you end up missing out on these other friendships that could be because they're hard, especially also once you get married. I got married pretty young. At the age, I got married at 22. And so, you know, are, are, are all of your friends, couple friends, are you, is it okay to go out and after you've worked all week and go out with your friends and leave your wife at home or she goes out, how do you make, how do you navigate that as well? Friendship as an adult, like churches talk about community all the time. I'm in a church where it's in our name. I'm at Four Corners Community Church. What's the promise there made by the name? Come here and you will find community. You will find shallow community, but you will also, as you're here, find a depth of community 
that we all need and we all long for. Like we, we paint that picture of the church. This is a place to find community, to find others, to connect, to have community. Here's what she says, though. I wish I'd known this as I went into adulthood. This is what she says. It's harder to find community as an adult. I said, I said college is like a, a community on steroids. She says it's like the rainforest of relationships. Close quarters, shared experiences, friendships grow like mad. Add in a college Christian fellowship experience, and you create incredible relationships for years. It's painful when that fertile environment disappears. Suddenly your work, home life, and church life are completely separate. That's what we talked about before. It's just a different scenario. You're now an adult. You've got a job. You don't live in a dorm. The second thing she said she wished she had known, being honest about loneliness is a doorway to connection. That's an important one. Being honest about loneliness is a doorway to connection. She writes, my sense that I was the only one who struggled with community kept me anxious and isolated for years. Only when I started confessing my alienation to others did I discover my experience was pretty normal. Be transparent with others and ask for help. You'd be surprised how the shared struggle of connection might deepen your existing relationships and allow you to connect to new people. The third thing she says is life transitions can mean loneliness. She says, loneliness kept showing up every time my life changed. Just when I was struggling to reinvent myself, I had to reinvent my friendships too. This is true for everyone. Job changes, illnesses, church splits, or even your kids starting school all throw wrenches in how you relate to your friends. Loneliness during these transitions is inevitable. Next, struggles mature you, making you a better friend. She says, now I see that my closest, most fruitful friendships were forged and strengthened in those times of struggle. Then she says, even wonderful friendships face intense conflict. Reconciliation is worth it. Shared faith and church involvement isn't magical friendship glue. There you go. She said, my expectation that friendships would magically spring up on Sundays got crushed. And the last one, she says, is realism about the body of Christ produces gratitude. She ends by saying, I wish I could tell my college self, don't be afraid. It's not always easy, but the friendships you do find will be sweeter than you can imagine. So what's the takeaway here? Because I think we all get this as you're an adult, uh, as you are, um, you know, you work and you have kids. Uh, What's the answer to friendships? The first thing is a recognition that we need friends. Your wife or your husband can't be your only friend. Certainly your kids were not, were not, are not supposed to be that. You need friends outside of the house. And the second thing I would say is this. Even though she wrote there that the church is not some sort of magic elixir to this. Even though she says the church is not just going to solve all the problems. The church for us as Christians has to be one of the answers. The church must get this right. Church, 
yes, we need to have our Sunday mornings correct, you know, done well. We need to preach good sermon. We need to do all these stuff. But in your staff meetings, in your elder meetings, in your other places, we need to be going, are we providing opportunities for people who probably are lonely to connect and have deepening relationships with people within the church community who share their faith and who probably share many of their concerns and many of their struggles. Church can't be a performance that we come into and come out of. It's got to be a community. It's got to be a family. That's really messy. That could be if aggravating. That could be difficult. You don't have to be friends with everybody in your church. But I believe that uh, the church needs to be a place where this happens. But there's also pressure on you. That's only going to happen as you invest in a church. Shallow community is the doorway to deep community. So what does that mean? It means be at church. Go to things. Take that step that's awkward often. And pretty soon you realize, oh, I know that person's name. Oh, I've gotten to know that person a little bit more. Oh, maybe I'll ask that person if they want to go out sometime. And things continue to grow. Friendship in adulthood is weird. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. And the church is one of the most effective solutions to that. All right, let's lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, let's do some, let, let's laugh. How about this? How about we laugh a little bit? So uh, I found this comedian. I saw this comedian on Twitter. His name is Tim Hawkins. Many of you know of Tim Hawkins. Uh, and I clicked on this clip because it was called Anyone Else Raised Baptist? Now, I wasn't Baptist, but let's be honest. A lot of uh, a lot of our more evangelical, non-denominational kind of, I grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance. A lot of these they mirror in a lot of ways the bigger Baptist church. They kind of come out. They got a lot of the same rhythms. They have a lot of the same cadence, a lot of the same traditions. And so while I wasn't raised Baptist, what he does share here, uh, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is hilarious. And also, I totally get it. It is about the altar call, the will you raise your hand, bow your head, uh, I want you to hear this, uh, and then I want to talk about why this is so funny. This is uh, comedian Tim Hawkins. Pastors are so cool now. They used to be not so cool. They used to make you do things you didn't want to do, embarrass you. I, used to, I, went, I raised a Baptist church. Anybody Baptist raised Baptist? I'll tell you what. Oh, Baptist, because there's always the altar call at the end of the service. Now, the altar call is great, but the Baptist pastor is always like, he, he always says he's never going to embarrass you, but he always does. He's like, every head bowed, every eye closed. We're not here to embarrass you. No one's looking. <laughs> and you know you're looking. You're like peeking. Up. Oh, that guy got saved last week. What's his problem? I'm going to party with that guy. He's got some stories. I've been. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're not here to embarrass you. No one's looking. But if you prayed that prayer with me just now, every head bowed, every eye closed, I want you to do this. I just I want you to slip your hand up right where you are. Like, where else am I going to slip my hand up? <laughs> Over there? No, right where you are. Right where you are. Then you do the countdown. Yes, 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 yes. All over the room. Yes. And you're like, I don't see one hand, Pastor. Not one. You're lying, dude. That's a flat horizon, bro. 
all over the room. Yes, yes, praise God. Then he always did this. I know there's one more. I know there's one more out there. So we're going to sing 80 more verses of Just As I Am. To one of you sinning punk heathens going to raise that hand. I know you want to do it. Where are you? Yes, you in the back. Yes. There's always someone in the back. Probably an usher. Go wrap it up, Slappy. I need to go. I got things to do. <laughs> Isn't that horrible? All right, if you were raised in the church, that has to cause you to laugh. Like, we got to be able to laugh at ourselves. And I, I sent that to buddies yesterday. Like, that made me laugh. So we've all been in that setting. We've all been there where the pastor is like, everybody close their eyes. And please, you know, raise your hand if if you prayed that prayer. And the first thing they said there is so true. When he says that, everybody looked. Everybody looked. And we're all peeking and we're all looking. And then the whole thing where the pastor's going, I see that hand, I see that hand. Uh, his claim that pastors make that up, I've always thought that to be true. I've always thought the pastor's going, I see that hand, I see that hand, and everyone's going, what the heck? We've got this weird, this comes out of, you know, a few generations ago, the revivalist meetings of the whole raise the hand, come down the aisle, pray this prayer, uh, that kind of mentality towards evangelism, and let's get as many hands raised as we can. And we did weird things with it. Let me tell you a story from uh, when I was younger. I was, I believe this was in high school. It might have been in college, but I believe I was in high school. I was at one of these youth meetings and uh, I had one of the youth leaders who knew that I was very much a Christian. I was very much one of the quote unquote leaders of our youth group. Uh, he said to me, hey, when the pastor uh, makes kind of the altar call, I want you to go forward so that other people see so that ice is broken. And I was like, well, that's kind of strange, but okay. So I did it. Is that manipulative? I don't know. But it was, I remember feeling in the moment, kind of strange, but I'm I'm in, I'm in. And we all kind of grew up thinking this is how you evangelize. Pray this prayer, heads bowed, hands raised. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with it. I do think what we got wrong was follow up in discipleship. So I think the question that evangelists do better with nowadays, even if they do the altar call, even if they do the come down the aisle or raise the hand is, and now go talk to this person. And then they, they try to uh, help that person. I think there was a day where it was really just, Hey, let's get them to walk down the aisle. And then it's somebody else's problem. But man, this is so funny. Because we've all, if you were raised in the church, we've been in that meeting. We've been in that youth group. We've been in that uh, sanctuary, that revival meeting where the pastor gives you the raise the hand. And you remember, you were probably already a Christian, but you were thinking to yourself, should I raise my hand again? Am I, am I going to make sure to seal the deal? Maybe I need to do it again. Hey, I sinned the other day. Maybe I need to do this again. And you lived in this perpetual uh, should I should I do it again? I raised my hand or went down the aisle multiple times in my life. And again, in terms of recommitment, in terms, it's fine. It's good. But I think we need uh, to continue to have a more robust vision of evangelism. 
what is it that we're doing? Now, remember, I always say other people's maybe less than perfect evangelism is better than my no evangelism. But I do think we need to get back to being reminded that oftentimes coming to Jesus isn't a one-time deal, but it's a long obedience in the same direction. It's a process of conversation. It's a process of revelation. It's a process of discovery that may not happen in that one meeting when the evangelist and the preacher says, raise your hands. What do you believe is the most effective way of evangelism? Is it get him to pray that prayer and let's get him out, get him in, get him out, get it over with? I mean, again, there's, there's, there's great debates to be had here, but when I, when I think about it, I, I do think to myself, okay, other people's maybe less than great evangelism is better than mine. I, I can't have this conversation unless I have a commitment to evangelism. And so uh, that's helpful. But then as the church, let's go, what's the best way to disciple people? What's the best way to talk about coming to faith in Jesus, growing in our faith with Jesus? What's the best way to do that? Food for thought, even as we laugh. See, Christians, we need to be able to laugh at ourselves. We need to be able to laugh at ourselves. And uh, that caused me a good laugh. One of the best things in life right now is how connected we can become. <clears throat> so, uh, you, you know, if you listen to the show, I have a daughter studying abroad right now. She's over in Tunisia and doing fantastic. Love in life, living her dream. Uh, but she's over uh, in Tunisia right now. And the question becomes, uh, when she was going was how much are we going to hear from her? Like, are we going to stay intact? Because I talked to people whose kids studied abroad, say 10, 15, 20 years ago. And they were like, yeah, I never really uh, got the chance to talk to my kids. Maybe once a week, I didn't do this. And that was just a little bit of a concern for us. Gosh, uh, you know, we talked to her a lot when she's back here, just a quick text here and there. What will it be like? And I got to be honest. They're never long. We don't talk a ton, but I've had contact with her every day that she's over there. How's the day going, sweetie? Uh, how are things? And uh, I feel like I kind of know what's going on. We understand that's the beauty of the connected world that we live in right now. We are the world has shrunk so that I can be in Illinois and she can be in Tunisia and we can very easily contact each other and connect with each other and be uh, continually <clears throat> in one another's lives. So I'm not one of these people who's like, we all need to go back to the days when we didn't have this connection and we didn't have our phones. And we no, these are, uh, these are a blessing. These are progress. These are good things, but with every blessing and progress, there's also probably a, a flip side to it, a dark side to all the connection that we have. And that is, uh, just as I enjoy being connected to whoever I want to be, whenever I want to be, there's also the burden of being connected to people whenever, uh, at all times. 
So, right, the the beauty of Internet and Wi-Fi and laptop computers is I don't have to sit in an office and work. But the downfall of it is I don't leave an office and then shut off all work unless I try really hard. Emails continue to come in. Notif- texts continue to come in. And it can be really hard to make the boundaries and do that. And so the question becomes, how do we not live just, um, oh, what's the word here? How do we not live controlled by the next email that comes in, the next text that comes in, the next notification that comes in? Because here's the thing about email. Eventually, if I don't answer them, I don't keep getting emails throughout the day. I might get some, but not a lot. It's what happens is it's the loop. I answer a bunch of emails in the morning. At some point, those people are going to probably answer back. And then I'm going to answer back to them and they're going to answer back to me. And emails just kind of grow upon themselves. One of the beauties is if I never send those first emails in the morning, I might have a day where I don't get a ton of email, texts, and other things. But friends, I do think something that we need to be very honest about is we can't have the motor of our lives just running hot all the time with constantly connected, constantly working, constantly emailing, constantly texting, constantly scrolling. We were, our brains weren't made to function that way. leads to burnout, it leads to discouragement, and just uh, to use a phrase that that became popular years ago, it just leads to really poor work-life balance, where I start living in a distracted marriage because I'm always answering and always on my phone. I'm distracted around my kids because I'm answering this loop that just keeps going. And if we're not intentional about it, it will constantly keep going. So what do we do about it? Well, let me point to Jesus. Our Savior, when he walked on this earth, if there was anybody who could justify running crazy, he had three years of ministry, and he's the Savior of the world. But what do we see Jesus doing often? We see him getting away from his disciples and the crowds. He goes away. That doesn't move ministry forward very much, but he would separate himself from them to pray, to rest, to be with his heavenly father. And it's always struck me that if if our Lord and Savior If Jesus disconnected, and I know disconnection was very different back then. They didn't have phones and this, that. But if if he rested, if he disconnected, then can you really justify saying that you're too busy and too important to do so? But friends, disconnection, especially in our day and age, will take great intentionality. Put your phone away. And this is a difficult one for me. My wife the other day told me she thinks I might have a phone addiction. (laughs) She said it half jokingly, but there was some truth to it. We just scroll. We fill empty time. 
So physically put your phone away at those times when you're with your wife and you're with your kids. It's about to be the weekend. Do some fun stuff as a family and don't have your phone on. You turn off notifications so that not every text that comes just dings. And not every email that comes dings. You don't need to have notifications on your phone. Uh, Just because somebody calls you doesn't mean you have to answer that phone call. It'll go to voicemail. You can call them back later. Prioritize what needs to be prioritized. And then take seriously the words of the Bible about Sabbath. Friends, Sabbath was given to us as a gift. Sabbath was given to us not as a burden, but as an opportunity. And that opportunity is to have our lives rightly organized, rightly um, set up so that we're not always running hot and we're not always going crazy. So take take a self-inventory of your own life. Are you always on your computer? Maybe move it out of the living room and put it into another room or maybe close it up at certain times. Are you always on your phone? Maybe put your phone away. Silence notifications. Ask another person. Do you think that I, I, I disconnect ever? Am I doing okay? I struggle with this. But I think we all need to, especially in the day and age we live in, do well with this. Be intentional. Don't let the emails and the texts and everything else run you. You run them. Not every email needs to be answered right away. Not every text needs to be answered right away. You could turn your phone off. You can do those things. You need to be healthy and you need long-term health. If I'm just running this hot, I'm not going to survive in my church. I'm not going to survive in whatever job. You're not going to survive whatever job you have. We need boundaries. We need rhythm. We need rest. We need to prioritize the important things in life. Connecting with our Heavenly Father, connecting with our, our spouse, our kids, and a rightly ordered life that's intentionally lived, I think then we can see the benefits of things like connections and phones and all of this. But, but when it runs us, uh, it's super dangerous. Hopefully you got big plans for the weekend. What I always tell you on a Friday is whatever you're doing this weekend, get to church. Get to your church. You might think, ah, my church annoys me. All churches annoy us. I'm sure my church annoys me, and I'm sure I annoy people in our church. Churches are messy. Churches can be annoying, but they, uh, we need to gather with our, with our church community, the body of Christ, spurring one another on, worshiping together, opening up God's word, being known and knowing others what we talked about earlier, right? Like the doorway to community. One of the doorways for us as Christ followers for deep and lasting community must be the church. But if it's going to be a doorway, you kind of got to go through the doorway. So get the church this weekend. If you don't have a church, go try one out in your neighborhood locally. Go try one out. And uh, I believe that you as a Christian, uh, the only way to grow in your faith, one of the parts of growing faith is to be part of a church community. Those look different, small, big, uh, kind of preacher stands up on a stage or more discussion-oriented, traditional, uh, contemporary, whatever. That's not the important thing. 
The important thing is that you find a community and be a part of it. All right. So do that this weekend. Uh, we talked earlier about unity, and I, I saw this quote from Charles Spurgeon. So we have these kind of heroes of the church, but you forget that they were just men and women. There was nothing magical about them. And what I want to read is Charles Spurgeon's words on John Wesley. These are two giants uh, of the of the Christian world over the last generations, but they were theologically uh, the antithesis of one another. They were theologically on opposite ends of the spectrum. And in our day and age, uh, oftentimes being theologically like politically, but being theologically that far apart from one another leads to disrespect, um, disassociation, and all of these things. I want you to hear what Charles Spurgeon said about John Wesley, both of them major players. So in some ways they could have been rivals because they were also theologically unaligned. But here's what Charles Spurgeon said about John Wesley. I can only say concerning Wesley that while I detest many of the doctrines which he preached, Yet for the man himself, I have a reverence second to no Wesleyan. And if there were wanted two apostles to be added to the number of the twelve, I do not believe that there could be found two men more fit to be so added than George Whitfield and John Wesley. The character of John Wesley stands beyond all imputation for self-sacrifice, zeal, holiness, and communion with God. He lived far above the ordinary level of common Christians and was one of whom the world was not worthy. See, we talk so much about unity and about Christian kindness. And here's a picture of it. They, I'm sure, disagreed passionately about important things. But Spurgeon here uh, is able to separate the the theo- theological beliefs of Wesley with the person and the character of John Wesley. He was able to say, this is a man worthy of uh, honor worthy of um, following in some level. He wouldn't say following his theological beliefs, but he would say, live your life like him. The character of John Wesley, he wrote, stands beyond all imputation for self-sacrifice, zeal, holiness, and communion with God. He was one of whom the world was not worthy for you to say these nice things about another person, to admire another person, to speak well of them that speak well of their character. To what level do they have to be in your tribe? To what level do they have to agree with you on things? Now Spurgeon would say Wesley was a Christian. I would assume they were on the same team, but they vehemently disagreed on many things. And people probably expected that they 
would speak badly of one another. At least in our day, you would expect that they would speak badly of one another. But no, there was a a unity under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think it's powerful. We can disagree and yet honor one another. We can even make opposite choices and hold on as brothers and sisters. There can be tension while we remain in community, right? It's, it is possible. It's humility. It's possible through humility to build up rather than tear down. It's possible to bless other people that we disagree with. And we live in a world where the headlines and the clicks are made by those who rip other people. Uh, But in a world that can really no longer hold that sort of tension that we can disagree but honor one another. I think the church has the opportunity to demonstrate a gracious unity that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all all things, right? There is a humility that says, you know what? We might disagree with each other, but we can still be in relationship. We can still be in community. I can still honor you. I can still um, speak well of you. I can still share a meal with you. I can still serve you. I can still be there for you. We can still be friends, disagree, and remain friends. It's just not the culture we live in politically. That's kind of leading the way, but theologically, And we again look to the life of Jesus, where Jesus hung out with sinners. Jesus hung out with the notorious. Jesus was in relationship with those whom he said, the sick who need a doctor. And it was the Pharisees and the religious leaders who condemned him for that. No good rabbi would would be in their presence, the presence of these types of people. It's uh, just not what we do. And these are great words, challenging words here from Charles Spurgeon. Should I feel guilty if I have any money? Like what should I feel about, uh, If I have money, I was on a website over the other day called gospelrelevance.com, gospel relevance. And an author by the name of David K. Wood asked this question, can Christians buy expensive things? I want you to think about that for a second. Think about all that Jesus has to say about money. Think about all that he says about the love of money or it's harder for a rich man to, to go. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Can I have expensive things? We live over here in the United States where we tend to have more money and more access to things, but the Bible has such strong things to say about money. So therefore, should you be guilty? Should you feel guilty if you buy a nice car, if you buy a vacation home, if you, I knew somebody very well who said, They were convicted. I should not have a vacation home. And they sold their vacation home. Is that the right move? Should you feel guilty going out for a nice meal or whatever else it might be? Can Christians buy expensive things or should we all be going to Goodwill 
and uh, driving old cars and whatever else it might be. So uh, he says, the author says, money provides options such as purchasing expensive things. Is it biblically permissible to buy expensive things? So you, I'm going to read to you what he says. You might disagree vehemently with it. That's, that's great. That's what I want uh, on this. He says this, the answer is yes to can we buy expensive things. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6. Of course, the word expensive is subjective, he writes. A college student may think $500 is expensive, whereas a retired person, a retired person who saved for decades may not notice that amount leave his bank account. When I say expensive, he says, I mean purchases that are expensive in relation to your net worth or purchases that are culturally recognized as luxurious or outlandish, such as large size boats, vacation homes, a brand new BMW. Again, subjective, but you figure it out. But he goes on to say his answer needs nuance. Besides answering yes to the question, he says, uh, if I were to unpack this answer in a more sophisticated manner, I'd say something like this. Yes, it may be ethically permissible for you to buy expensive things as long as, and then he gives four qualifiers. You pursue godliness, give regularly to God's kingdom purposes, share with others, and devote yourself to good works. Uh, so it goes like this. Godliness. If you're not pursuing godliness through local church involvement, grace-driven spiritual disciplines, the list goes on and on, then getting lots of money to buy expensive things may be the worst thing that happens to you because too much money and material possessions without godly character can draw your heart away from the Lord. On the other side, he writes, I don't get concerned when Christians who take holiness seriously buy a five-bedroom house or a Tesla because I know they love the Lord more than their material possessions. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows your money. So if you buy expensive things too often, then your heart may slowly become attached to them. Even if you do have regular quiet time with the Lord, it seems prudent to suggest buying expensive things is ethically permissible, but it's probably not ideal to buy expensive things too frequently. So are you pursuing godliness? He says, number two, give. He says, I recount the story of a seminary professor who pastored an upper class congregation. He'd often get a variation of this question. Should I tie that of my gross or net income? His reply was blunt, blunt. You should aspire to become the kind of Christian who doesn't ask that kind of question. His point and the New Testament's point, I think, is that financial giving to your local church and God's kingdom's purposes should not be restricted by a certain number in every season of life but should be characterized by generosity and willingness. We pray, read scripture, consider what we own, consider the needs of others and give faithfully, regularly and sacrificially done for the right reasons. Giving your wealth builds permanent treasure in heaven, right? It's Jim Elliott's famous quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So do you give pursue godliness? Are you giving? Number three, generous. You can own expensive things. Just make sure that you get to enjoy them too. Oh no, he's sorry. Just make sure others get to enjoy them too. The early church ensured that no needs among them. And Paul says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The immediate context for those who preach 
But from this text, we learn the principle of sharing. Can you host a poor person in your big house? Can you take that lonely person in your church on your boat? Can you allow your pastor uh, to stay in your vacation home for a week? Oh, I like that one. Share your stuff with others. If you can't, that's a sign that material possessions may be an idol. And number four, he says, is good works. If you want to make an evangelical nervous, mention the idea of good works. Good works are not the basis of salvation, but the evidence of salvation. It's a neglected doctrine in our evangelical and Protestant churches. Study James or the book of Titus especially, and you'll find many references to doing good works. Of every category on this list, good works might surprise you, but it's the one that ties everything together. From a Christian perspective, uh, You could go sailing or go to Italy or take a year-long sabbatical, he says, for a restricted period, but not for the rest of your life. At some point, you get off the boat, and it's time to start doing good works again. As long as you're breathing, this is more about retirement, right? But as long as you're breathing, God has good works for you, Ephesians chapter 2. The Christian in this life should never completely and entirely be absorbed in leisurely activities. So he says, as long as you're pursuing godliness, giving money away for God's kingdom purposes, sharing your material possession with others and committing your life to good works, it seems you're a candidate to occasionally enjoy desired luxuries. I think that's pretty measured because a lot of times we go, you can do it's your money, do whatever you want with it. Or we go the other way. You're a Christian. You have a you have to be in poverty. But it's about the love of money. It's about where your treasure is. And I think this was a measured art. I thought this was helpful. Regardless of the money you have, are you pursuing godliness? Are you generous? Are you giving? Are you, um, are you these things? Are you doing good works with your money or with whatever it is that you have? Very helpful. I wonder what you think of it. Can Christians buy expensive things? I think the answer he gave is a yes, but. And as we close the show, we like to do so either with good news or we like to do so with um, encouragement or something for you to think about. And I was reading uh, Dr. Jim Dennison's daily newsletter, and he talked about Paul McCartney the other day and McCartney's famous, famous Beatles song called Yesterday, right? Already, some of you are already singing it in your head. But it's really, um, uh, Denison writes, it's one of the most haunting songs in the Beatles' 213-song repertoire. And now, uh, 60 years later, Paul McCartney has explained its emotional bridge, right? Let me remind some of you who aren't Beatles people, uh, the bridge to Yesterday is why she had to go. I don't know. She wouldn't say I said something wrong. Now I long for yesterday. What was behind those words? They sound regretful. They sound haunting. Well, it turns out McCartney had a conversation in which he embarrassed his mother. And then soon after that, she died at the age of 47 when the singer was just 14 years old. And now he's basically saying he wishes he had an eraser that he could use to rub that yesterday moment away. Haunting. Sad. Why'd she had to go? 
I don't know. She wouldn't say I said something wrong. Now I long for yesterday. And when he says I long for yesterday, he's longing for the ability to make things right. This regret that he's probably lived with his entire life. It reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Field of Dreams, right? What's at the premise of Field of Dreams? We all think it's a baseball movie. It's Shoeless Joe Jackson. It's the cornfield in Iowa, and it's baseball. All of those are the vehicle that gets you to the ultimate point that Kevin Costner's character uh, said something really hurtful and then left to his father. And before he ever had a chance to make it right, his father died. And really, the whole premise behind Field of Dreams is almost Kevin Costner doing penance. If you build it, he will come, ease his pain, go the distance. They're all about his dad. And so the ultimate scene of Field of Dreams at the end is Kevin Costner having that catch with his dad. Hey, dad, you want to have a catch? is that line that makes most of us tear up in Field of Dreams. What is it? It's the opportunity to, uh, in a supernatural way there, to have made things right from something, some huge regret that he held on to. Friends, we don't have to live very long before we experience such pain ourselves from the things that we said Uh, the things that we did to others, maybe the things we didn't do or the things they said and did to us. Like we all wish we could live by Jesus's words perfectly at all times in Matthew seven, whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them. But that's not true. We hurt other people, other people hurt us, but I want to focus on the, we hurt other people. Because the other people hurt us. The quest, the conversation there is about forgiveness. But the when we hurt other people, the conversation there uh, is about regret. It's about saying I'm sorry. It's about. So what do you do with the things that you've that you hold on to from days ago, weeks ago, or years ago, decades ago, that cause you great regret. That in your quiet moments or when you're laying in bed, sometimes you still think about that thing you said to that person in high school. You still think about that thing that you left unsaid or that was hurtfully said to a loved one. And maybe they're no longer here. Is there hope for you in that situation? What do you do? A whole other category. What about the things you've done, the sins you've committed? Maybe not to another person, but maybe you uh, you did something that you know was wrong. And you're like, I, I, I have such regret. I have such guilt over these things. What do you do? Friends, 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins... If we bring these things to the Lord, if we bring our hurts and our regrets uh, and the things we wish had never happened, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
That's the good news of the gospel. A lot of times we think that verse should be, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to heap more guilt and shame upon us. It's not true. We read in the Old Testament that, that in God, are the sins, our sins are as far as the East is from the West. That we've been made white as snow. So there's still consequences to the things that we've done. There's still consequences to the relationships that we've fractured, but it doesn't need to uh, weigh us down and burden us for the rest of our lives. Our God is not a God of shame and regret. But he is a God through Jesus Christ of forgiveness and grace. And we can know that grace ourselves. We can know that forgiveness ourselves. And we can also dispense that forgiveness for others. We can be um, men and women who show ourselves grace and forgiveness and who show the same to others. The enemy would have us believe that we are Uh, the entire direction of our lives is determined by the things that we've done and that we can't make things right. So I would say this, if you're regretful about something you've done to somebody and they're still with us, apologize, say you're sorry, be the bigger person. But if they're no longer with us or you don't have access to them or whatever it is, Know that we can be made whole again. We can be forgiven. We can be shown grace. We can have uh, purity from those things that are plaguing us because of the good news of the gospel, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, because he came and lived and died and rose again, defeating sin, defeating shame, defeating guilt while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We can grasp onto that today. If you are riddled by guilt and shame, may you hear the good news today of what Jesus has done for you. Embrace that grace. Embrace that forgiveness. Have the burden lifted and continue following after him. Well, we hope that you have a great weekend. Go to church. Remember, go to church on Sunday, but we hope that you have a wonderful weekend. Join us again on Monday from 4 until 6. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.